After today, I'll be gone for the next four Sundays. So this is the last time we'll look at John's Gospel until September. And if we had to choose a passage to end with before taking a break from John, I don't think we could pick a better one than this. We're going to look at the beginning of John chapter 6, a passage where Jesus says to his disciples, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, announcing yourself by saying it is I seems a little bit strange, I think. It's probably not what any of us say when we come through the front door at home. But what we're going to see is that Jesus' choice of words is actually very significant. And before we read from chapter 6, let's remember what we saw in chapter 5. At the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus healed a paralyzed man. And because he did that on the Jewish day of rest, the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders got angry with Jesus. And in response to their anger, Jesus said things that made them even more angry. He claimed to be the Son of God, who is equal with God the Father, meaning he has the full power and authority of God. He does what only God can do, and he is to be honored just as his Father is honored. Those are massive claims that Jesus makes for himself. Last week, we saw him point to several ways that his Father corroborates or authenticates those massive claims. And in our passage this morning, we're going to be given more evidence that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Lord of the universe. And that means his people can rely on him completely. So with that background in mind, let's read from John chapter 6, verse 1 through to verse 21. If you haven't uh, found it yet, it's in page 1069 or in the larger print Bibles, 1656. John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. 
he did the same with a fish. When they had all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is God's Word. And it tells us two very simple truths. When we are serving Jesus, we can trust His resources. And when we are in trouble, we can trust His care. Two very simple truths. But truths you and I can never get enough of. First, in verses 1 to 13, when we're serving Jesus, we can trust his resources. Already in John's gospel, we've seen Jesus moving back and forth a bit between his home region of Galilee in the north of Israel and Jerusalem, the capital city in the south. In chapter 5, he was in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, but now he's back north. In Galilee, in verse 1 says, he crosses to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, otherwise other, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. So that means he crossed from the west side to the east side. Presumably he crossed in a boat. But verse 2 says, a great crowd followed him. Apparently they were on foot. So they went round the north shore of the lake. And what that means is, Jesus and his disciples took the more direct route. They arrived at the eastern shore first, and they climbed into the area which is known today as the Golan Heights. And they sat down together. But before long, verse 5 says, Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him. If we just pause there and ask ourselves, have we heard anything like this before in John's Gospel? Well, yes, we have. Back in chapter 4, when Jesus was in Samaria, he sat down by a well with his disciples as a crowd of Samaritans came towards him. And he said to his disciples on that occasion, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. 
Now, Jesus was talking about the people who were walking across the fields. And he explained that the harvest he had in mind was a harvest for eternal life. So Jesus has already been encouraging his disciples to see the crowds not as an inconvenience, but as a harvest field, a mission field. Jesus looks at the crowds not as a rabble. He doesn't look on them with arrogance or disdain. He sees them as lost people who need life. Men, women, and children who have needs and hopes. Needs and hopes that can only be met and fulfilled in Him. Jesus has already begun to teach that to His disciples. And here, He's going to continue the lesson. As He once again looks up and sees a great crowd coming towards Him, He says to Philip, one of the disciples, in verse 5, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip was the obvious person for Jesus to ask, because Philip came from Bethsaida, which was probably the nearest town. So Jesus is not flustered. John tells us here, Jesus knows what he's going to do. The question is, does Philip know where to turn? That's why Jesus is asking him this question. Jesus isn't actually trying to find out where the nearest Tesco is. Jesus wants to know if Philip realizes Jesus has the resources that are needed in this situation. When his servants are faced with the great crowd, and as they seek to meet the needs of the great crowd, Jesus has the resources they need. But Philip hasn't yet understood. So in verse 7 he says, never mind where Tesco is, they don't have the stock to meet this need. And we couldn't afford it even if they had. Look at verse 7. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Even if we had half a year's wages on hand, it would only buy them a mouthful each, Jesus. In a moment we'll learn there are somewhere in the region of 5,000 men in this great crowd. So if we add in the ladies and the kids... There could be anywhere between 10 and 20,000 people here on the hillside. So no doubt Philip's calculation is quite accurate. He obviously knows the cost of things, and he has a good head for quick calculations. The problem is, Philip can't think beyond costs and calculations. Philip's horizon is severely restricted. It hasn't yet clicked with Philip that he's standing in front of God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the one whose resources are unlimited. Well, at this point, Andrew steps in, and he's a bit more proactive than Philip. Instead of being overwhelmed by the maths of the situation, Andrew has already scouted around to see what's actually on hand, and he brings, in verse 9, five small barley loaves. 
Think of little rolls or scones. And two small fish. Think of sardines. This really is a lunch fit for one boy. And in the end, Andrew isn't any more optimistic than Philip was. How far will they go among so many? Just like Philip, Andrew is missing the fact that the man in front of him has infinite resources. And so, Jesus shows his infinite resources. Now, at first, the disciples probably felt they were being set up for a major embarrassment here because Jesus tells them to make the people sit down. So now, this great crowd is expecting something. They're licking their lips. They're tucking their hankies into their chins, under their chins. They're loosening their belts in expectation. But the disciples have nothing to serve them. The boy's lunch hardly counts. It's so pathetic. But as the disciples stand there, no doubt red-faced and sweating, Jesus takes what they have, and miraculously it becomes not just enough, but far more than enough. Look how that's underlined for us several times. First in verse 11... We're told those who were seated got not just a bite, they got as much as they wanted. Then in verse 12, when they'd all had enough to eat. Literally, when they were all satisfied. And the ultimate evidence of abundance comes in verse 13. As the disciples gather up 12 baskets of leftovers. The leftovers are more than what they had to begin with. Much more. It's a bit like sowing and reaping here. First the disciples distributed among the crowd, and now they gather among the crowd. Is there any significance to there being 12 baskets? Well, there are a few possibilities, but on the most obvious level... Jesus had 12 close disciples. So each disciple gets a basket. And as they did when they were distributing the food, now as they fill their basket, each one gets to personally experience the reality of Jesus' unlimited resources. They're all called to serve him among the great crowd. Eventually, these disciples will be sent out to distribute, distribute living bread as they spread the good news about Jesus. They will also be sent to gather a harvest for eternal life. And here, before that bigger mission really gets going, Jesus wants them to learn when we're serving Jesus, we can trust his resources. The Jesus who took the boy's lunch and made it more than enough for this great crowd, this same Jesus will take the small gifts and abilities of these disciples and he will make them more than enough for their bigger mission as well. 
As these disciples face a world that needs the living bread of salvation, they need to know they can trust Jesus' resources for that too. And the situation hasn't changed. Unless our head's in the sand, we all know the needs of the world around us, don't we? For material things, yes, but even more so for eternal life. Even those people who are rich in material things are utterly starving when it comes to salvation and life. And again, unless our head's in the sand, we all know the smallness and weakness of the church in this country in particular. If the church throughout England pulled all of its resources together, a boy's lunch would probably be a good description of what we'd have. When we look at our leaders and our congregations and our cultural leverage, don't we feel like Andrew? How far will they go among so many? We're faced with a great crowd. A great crowd that is lost and starving for eternal life. And all that we can rustle up feels as impressive as a few dinky rolls and a can of sardines. It feels like a hopeless situation. Probably often we want to resign and give up. But the lesson of this passage is for us too. When we're serving Jesus, we can trust his resources. And that doesn't mean we just sit back and see if he'll do something. It means we bring what we have, we put it at his disposal, as small and silly as it seems, we put our little abilities and our little gifts to work for him, we get involved in serving him, we do what we can to take the good news about him to the great crowd knowing that his unlimited resources are at work in the situation. He's not discouraged by our little efforts. He can make something of them. Just like he did with the little lunch here. And in the end, nothing will be wasted. Maybe that's another significance to the 12 baskets of leftovers. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel that made up the full number of God's people in the Old Testament. And as you and I put our little abilities to work, in the end, nothing will be wasted. All of God's people will be gathered into his kingdom. No longer just saved Jews, but the expanded New Testament people of God. Men, women, and children from every nation and people group. Each of us, individually, and each local fellowship in our particular area, each local fellowship of believers goes out into the crowd. Just like each of the disciples with their baskets. And as he did with the disciples, Jesus already has in mind what he's going to do. In our situation, with our acts of service, 
And in the end, when it's all added together, all of God's great harvest for eternal life will have been gathered in. It won't be because of our great strategy or skill. It will be because our little efforts were backed up by the infinite resources of heaven. So don't give up your service for Jesus. Keep going in it. All the more so when you're feeling weak and ineffective. Keep going. When you feel like your acts of service are nothing among so many, then remember you're part of the big plan to gather everyone in. And that plan has all Jesus' resources behind it. So keep going. But here, beside Galilee, Jesus' disciples have another truth to learn. When we're in trouble, we can trust his care. We've seen how this feast of literal bread is partly to prepare the disciples to take living bread to the crowd. But the crowd's reaction to the feast shows they're not yet ready for living bread. They now have full bellies, but that doesn't get them thinking about the kingdom of God. It gets them thinking about a very earthly, very human kingdom. Look at verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The prophet who is to come is a figure mentioned in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. A prophet like Moses. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Through Moses, God provided the ancient Israelites with bread in the wilderness. So it makes sense that when Jesus does the same, the people would think of Moses and the one like him who had been prophesied. But notice how they're thinking about the prophet like Moses. They reckon he'll also be a king. And for them, a king means someone who will lead them in revolt against their Roman overlords. And this might be one reason John particularly highlighted the number of men who are present here. 5,000 men is a pretty good start on a rebel army. And they're all here together in an isolated place. And as they see Jesus' power, it seems like the perfect moment to get the revolution started. And if Jesus doesn't agree, well, never mind. They will make him king by force. Presumably that means they will proclaim him king. Then they think the Romans will have it in for Jesus and he'll have to go along with the revolt. But Jesus knows what's brewing among the crowd, and he knows that crushing the Romans is not his mission. His mission is to go to the cross and be crushed himself. He knows how disastrous it would be if the crowd tried to force a revolt. They will be crushed, 
like they've been crushed before by the Romans. And so, Jesus tries to quieten them all down. He tries to talk sense to them. No, he doesn't. Jesus takes off. He flees the scene to some more isolated spot in the Golan Heights. And we'll see in a moment, the disciples don't seem to have any more idea where he is than the crowd does. Jesus exits the scene in a big hurry. Why? Sometimes that's what's needed. Sometimes the crowd will not listen to sense. If you know about Joseph in the Old Testament, when Potiphar's wife got ideas about getting Joseph into bed, he didn't stay around to negotiate. He ran off, leaving his cloak in her hand. And I wonder if Jesus here is actually doing something very similar. Early in his ministry, the devil tried to entice Jesus away from his mission. The devil offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And isn't the crowd here just repeating that temptation? Enticing Jesus to abandon his path to the cross and use his power to gain an earthly kingdom. Jesus had resisted the temptation the first time round, but temptations seldom come only once. And here when the temptation comes again, in a different situation from a different source, Jesus does what Joseph did. And that has got to be our strategy too. Don't flirt with temptation. Don't try to negotiate. Just get out. Jesus is our example in that. But thankfully, he's much more than just our example. The infinite resources that help us as we serve Jesus are also at work to care for us in our trouble. Whether that trouble takes the form of temptation for us or whether it's some other distress that we're in. That's what the disciples are about to learn. We've noticed that Jesus' swift exit from the scene has left them baffled as well. They don't seem to know where he is, and so at a loss for anything better to do, they decide to go back across the lake where they came from. Verse 16, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. Verse 19 explains that they're now three or four miles out, so they're right in the middle of the lake. They're in the dark, in the storm, at the furthest point from land. And although some of these disciples are fishermen, in this trouble, they're just as helpless as when they faced the great crowd who needed to be fed. By themselves, the disciples could not meet that need. Here, they cannot fix this trouble they're in. 
And worst of all, Jesus has withdrawn. He isn't there in the storm. And it is inconceivable that he could get to them even if he wanted to. It's dark, so he wouldn't be able to find them. And even if he could locate them, they're too far out. They're right in the middle. And anyway, Jesus has no boat. Later on in the chapter, we're told there was only one boat in the eastern side, and that's the one the disciples took. So they can't help themselves, and they are out of reach of Jesus' help. Do you ever feel like that? I know Jesus is good, but he's not that good. He wasn't there when I needed him. And now it's too late. He couldn't get to me now. His care couldn't reach me now. Things have gone too far at this stage. This trouble is too bad. It's too dark and I'm too far out. Jesus is good, but my situation's beyond him now. Maybe we all think like that sometimes. But look how misguided that kind of thinking is. Look again at these disciples in their impossible, unreachable situation. In the middle of verse 19, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. He is not rowing a raft he cleverly constructed out of driftwood. He's not showing off his open water swimming skills. Under the circumstances, either of those would have been mightily impressive. But no, Jesus comes walking on the water. Effortlessly, he strides into their impossible situation. Effortlessly, almost casually, Jesus reaches these unreachable disciples. It was inconceivable that he could get to them. But he does. And verse 19 says they were frightened. Well, of course they were. It's beginning to dawn on them that Jesus actually is who he claims to be. He really is God in the flesh. He really does have authority to do what only God can do. In the introduction to this book, John wrote about Jesus, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And here in the boat, along with the other disciples, John sees something of Jesus' divine glory. And along with the other disciples, John is frightened. Together, these men realize they're dealing with power and glory beyond what they can take in. Frightening power and glory. And Jesus does nothing to dampen down the disciples' impression of him. 
He says, it is I, which, as we noticed earlier, is a strange way to announce yourself. But in fact, these words that seem strange have a very special significance. Jesus will introduce himself this way seven times in John's Gospel. Sometimes the words are translated, I am he. But in the original language, the words are the same each time Jesus says them. Why is it significant for Jesus to say, it is I or I am he? It's significant because in the Old Testament, God uses that phrase to announce himself as the one and only God. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says, See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. So, when Jesus chooses to introduce himself with the phrase, I am he, or it is I, Jesus is claiming to be not an ambassador for God, not even a lesser version of God. Jesus is claiming to be God. Equally God along with his Father. Jesus is claiming to be all he described in the middle of John chapter 5 as he outlined his unique oneness with his Father. So here in John 6, when he strides up to these disciples in their trouble and says, it is I, Jesus is reminding them why he's able to reach them in their unreachable situation. He can reach them because he is almighty God. He can reach them because no situation is unreachable for God. No trouble is beyond his care. And so Jesus adds in verse 20, don't be afraid. Why shouldn't they be afraid? Because he is the God of power and love. He had not abandoned them. One writer says, they have never been out of his sight even if he may have been out of theirs. No trouble could take them beyond the reach of his care. And verse 21 says, With Jesus, they make it safely to the shore where they were heading. And that's true for you in your troubles. Notice there's no promise here that Jesus will always take your trouble away. The point to take from this is that because he is almighty God, you can trust his care in your troubles. You are never out of his sight. Even if he might be out of yours. You're never beyond his reach. And so you don't need to be afraid. With Jesus, you will reach the eternal shore where you're heading. In both their service and in their trouble, these disciples did not have what they needed. I mean, by themselves, they didn't have what they needed. 
They couldn't provide for the great crowd in front of them. And they couldn't make it through the storm. But in both cases, Jesus had all they needed and more. And as disciples of this same Jesus today, this is the truth you and I need to take away with us today. In our service and our troubles, our last song helps us to encourage one another with this truth that Jesus has everything we need. So let's sing in praise of God and to one another, come to Jesus, rest in him.
trust in Jesus, he will keep us to the end. How sure his compassion for us, oh how deep is his love, so come, come to Jesus and rest. How sure his compassion for us, oh how deep is his love, so come, come to Jesus and rest in Him. Come to Jesus and rest in Him. Today, Jesus still says to his people, it is I, don't be afraid. And so, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.